If you pick up financial inclusion, there are many new business models and new technologies that are widening the population groups in, in developing markets that are now part of the audience for financial services. They're not excluded. And actually, a lot of the innovations in financial services are coming from the developing world rather than the, the other way around. You have embedded finance, which is enabling non-banks to innovate in financial services with the help of the banks. So all these things together are really providing us a more universal uh, landscape for financial services rather than innovation happening in just a few mature developed countries. You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast brought to you by Edgar Dunn & Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the City of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrish. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? So do join me and please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify or your podcast platform of choice. And do feel free to make contact and say hello. I welcome any questions, ideas or suggestions. Send me an email or reach out to me on LinkedIn and I look forward to hearing from you. So in today's episode, I'm joined by Sammy Zaffer, who's a director at EDC and based with me in our London office. Our conversation was actually recorded in December, so it's great to finally publish it today. We discuss EDC's latest FinTech report, which addresses embedded finance, financial inclusion, and cryptocurrencies, amongst other things. And as Sammy outlines in the intro section, all three of these topics are combining together to provide a more universal landscape for financial services, in which a lot of innovations are actually coming from the developing world, rather than from just a few mature developed countries in the West. We discuss and debate much besides, so I hope you do enjoy this conversation with Sammy Safford, Director, Edgar Dunn, London. So, hello, Sammy. Hey, Martin, how are you? I'm really looking forward to hearing about your latest FinTech report. Before we dive into that, perhaps you could just provide the listeners with a brief overview of who you are and what your role at EDC is. Uh, sure. I'm a director in Edgar Dunn & Company, and uh, I lead our fintech and advanced payments practice. So my interests really are in following the innovations in fintech, the companies that are being successful or not being successful, what uh, companies and founders are doing in, in finding new opportunities, and all, all the tech and the business models related to that. Okay, great. Tell me a bit about the background to the report before we dive into the current issue. I think there's, it's been going on for quite a few years. Yeah, it has been. Yeah. And I think it's now the 13th year or maybe the 14th year. I, I'll have to check, but it's been, it's been going on for a while. And I think it's become something of an industry, sort of an event every year. It's not like we go deep into the data or the statistics or we collect special quantitative information to develop the report. But it sort of looks at the key trends every year. Mm. And then we select some of the trends and try to see to what extent the hype around those trends is justified or what are the things that we need to discuss, what are the interesting things that need to be brought out. So, so that's why we, we normally select three or four key trends every year. And it kind of maintains that sort of independence as well, which, uh, which is also quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if we take a position that is different to... Uh, our sponsors uh, are different to what the market is currently thinking. Uh, we just, you know, we show why we are, why we have a different view of things. Mm -hmm. And we usually have a different view 
on the way things are developing. And it's also good for debate as well, because usually there is, for some, some trends, there is very sharp divide that people who completely go with the new product, the people who, who really don't believe in it. So I think we, 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 we have some strong opinions, but at the same time, we try to give a balanced view as well. And you mentioned that there is, you know, you led by the data to some extent. So there's a, there's a sort of editorial commentary piece to it, but there's an underlying primary research that's conducted in preparation for these reports. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. Like- I mean, it's, it's not like um, a detailed quantitative model building uh, or, or, or things like that, but there is the statements we make are data driven. They are driven by our experience, our knowledge of the market. We conduct a series of interviews of experts in a particular field. We have experts within the firm that we talk to. And of course, we have access to all the databases and all the articles and all the market intelligence that's out there. So we try to sort of, you know, look at the competing views. We look at where is there, where there is consensus about something, whereas there is a little bit of discussion or debate. Mm-hmm. And we try to combine all that and provide our views as well. Okay. Perhaps you can talk me through the, the main points, the main findings of the report, just the high level. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we pick, picked up three topics. So it's sort of the first finding really is that these three topics are important over the, over the next few years, and we need to pay attention to them. We never really say who the winners will be, because that's just nobody knows in the financial services field as it is developing. But this year, we picked three areas. So it's embedded finance. That's the first one. The second is financial inclusion. And the third is cryptocurrencies, or generally if we speak broadly, these are digital currencies that involve crypto as well as things like CBDCs, which are pretty much exactly opposite of what CBDCs do. So those three trends or topics we we picked. Mm. Um, it's interesting isn't it? because it don't kind of on the face of it feel that connected or associated with each other. But you you found some some common ground there between the three the three topics. Yeah, they are connected because if you see, it shows actually broader participation in the field of financial services across the world. If you pick up financial inclusion, there are many new business models and new technologies that are widening the the, the, the population groups in in developing markets that are now part of the audience for financial services. They're not excluded. And actually, a lot of the innovations in financial services are coming from the developing world rather than the, the other way around. You have embedded finance, which is enabling non-banks to innovate in financial services with the help of the banks. So they are able to process their own payments. They are able to offer their own financial services, but leveraging on the collective, collective experience of, of the financial services industry. And then finally, crypto, we have learned is, you know, it's not crypto's purpose is not to completely sideline and make irrelevant the current financial system, but it's mm. it's sort of links to it. So all these things together are really providing us a more universal uh, landscape for financial services rather than innovations happening in just a few mature developed countries. Right. Okay. Well, let's go through each one of these themes in in turn. In terms of the embedded finance, obviously a lot of hype around embedded finance. We hear a lot about it. Actually, it'd be interesting to hear your reflections on Money 2020. I mean, I've seen some of the, the clips and headlines from it myself, and there's a lot of talk about embedded finance. But what do you see as the main drivers of embedded finance going forward? Yeah, I think in embedded finance, you know, you 
provide sort of you empower a lot of providers of different types of services to actually being able to process your own payments to being able to provide your own financial services products without being a financial institution yourself so if you if previously if you went into payments of financial services you were not a financial institution either the regulator wouldn't allow you or you were a bit of a risk to everyone because it's a very important field it's it requires that you take care of your customer security their funds where payments are made so now it's almost like joining uh, forces between financial uh, institutions and non-financial institutions which provide services like Netflix or Spotify hmm. or other organizations but are able to provide payments are able to provide financial services without become being experts in that field so do do we think that any company can become a fintech eventually is that any company can become a fintech if we have a good idea but it doesn't matter if you have, don't have a good idea most of the fintechs don't have a good idea when they start mm. it's actually uh, they find and refine ideas as they go along but that doesn't mean that you start a fintech if you don't have an idea because nobody's going to fund you mm. so you've got to have a good idea but sometimes the market changes on you sometimes you realize you are actually better at one thing and and that's very different to what you started out with you know so for example i give you give an example one of the companies that that we both are familiar yeah. with is chargebacks 911 yeah. right they started out as a marketplace as an e-commerce business and they found out that actually the process of chargebacks is a massive pain point for digital marketplaces and digital merchants because the rules and the regulations are so complex that nobody really understands those and it's mm. just they 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 can literally bring your business down because of the back office bottlenecks that these produce a lot of cost in the systems and the cost in the system the fraud that you're exposed to the chargebacks that you that hit you as a merchant who has just started out in the digital space it can actually completely uh, completely damage your revenue earning capacity so they actually became experts in helping other companies manage chargebacks and they've done very well so it's just uh, just a small example of how how companies pivot how they find something more interesting more important more revenue generating than what they started out with who do you think actually benefits the most from the embedded finance trend i mean if you look at the value chain uh, starting with the banks with the regulatory license uh, the banking license for example the various different intermediaries on the, along the way and then perhaps the platform where the actual embedded finances is taken up by the end user i mean who along that value chain is going to benefit the most from this trend you know i'm going to give you a very uh, maybe it'll sound a little bit of a trite answer or a prepared answer something that you hear in the conferences a lot but it's true that it is ultimately the end users of that service who are benefiting so you've got the buyers the consumers and you've got the sellers so what embedded finance is doing it's actually enabling that link between buyers and sellers no matter how many people are in the middle mm. facilitating that relationship or that payment transaction or that credit transaction it's actually making the buyer and the seller or the two end users interact right and buy and sell services from each other so, in a, in a, in a much better way than they did before so the platforms perhaps benefit to the extent that they are interacting with the end users and that the consumption is taking place at that point of that point on the platform at that point of context and it makes their platform even more sticky and the relationship gets even more 
it binds the, the relationship with the end customer even even more. And and as a consequence, you know, the regulated bank is effectively being pushed into the background. And and that relationship with the the with their customer essentially as a consumer of financial services is being broken or well, disrupted. Well, possibly, possibly for some of the for some of the products that the bank is bank is um, the banks. A bank is generating a lot of revenue in, maybe on those uh, uh, products. But we're talking about products, for example, uh, a company that is selling um, some other content, that is selling some other service, that is mm. not a financial services uh, product. That's not in competition with banks. So banks are actually enabling it. It's, it's almost like it's almost like when you, when you talk about Formula One racing, right? So there are cars that car companies that are participating, but they also sell their engine to another car company. Right. right. So one car okay. company is competing itself, but another car company is using that car company's engine to compete. Mm -hmm. You know. So there are these synergies, and these are actually additional revenue sources for banks. So this is kind of increasing the size of the pie. It's this sort of incremental value that's being created as a result of embedded finance. It's not you know moving existing value around. The value chain is is actually increasing the size of the pie. Is that yeah, absolutely, because there are new products, new opportunities mm. coming out. So for example, re, you know, recurring payments for merchants who really rely on membership services, you know, are now much easier. It's much easier for them now to take payments across different payment systems. You could do that before, but it's just much easier for them, much quicker. They're able right. to monitor it in, in, in a much more meaningful way and, 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 and adjust, you know, whatever the fees or, 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 or make sure their customer services are being delivered properly. Uh, so I, I think, I think that's, it, it sort of goes everywhere. It's not like there's, there's a specific area that's, uh, you know, that's benefited. But do we think, do we, I mean, obviously there's payments on the one hand, and then obviously we've seen the rise of BNPL and, you know, the sort of the, yeah. And, and ultimately, is embedded finance essentially just a lending play, or, or do you think well, I mean, you know, beyond that? You know, financial professors would say in financial service, there are only two things, right? It's, it's, it's basically for every transaction, if it's a payment, there, there are two sides to it. If it's, it's, it's a credit transaction, it's a derivative of mm -hmm. any type, there are two parties involved as users of that service, yeah. you know. So those, those are the guys who who will be using or will be benefiting from this. So either it's credit or it is a pure payment. It can take different types. And you know, th these are the things we, we used to think that, okay, pay banks provide payments, right? But in the last 20 years, so many other companies have come up to provide payments, mm. but in different ways, finding sure. different opportunities, finding different pain points to address. So one example is that of Flywire that mm -hmm. has been around for a Absolutely. while now and international payments through correspondent banking have always been there, but they found that when international students have to pay their fees to U.S. universities or universities, particularly coming from China or India, it was not easy for them. It was expensive mm -hmm. and the bank system was slower and the universities also had a problem reconciling who has paid the fee for what course, particularly because students changed courses even before they joined or after they joined. So they focused on making sure that, that there is a reconciliation system for, for the universities and it's easy for them to accept these overseas payments. And now most universities require students to use Flywire to make payments. So it's, it's actually not inventing payments per se, but it's, mm. it's finding where can you make life easier 
for the two users of the payment right. system, which is the sender of the payment and the receiver. Yeah. So maybe embedded finance is just a continuation of the existing trend. It's more of a e continuation of the evolution rather than a revolutionary type trend. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a revolutionary evolution, if you can use that word. I mean, it's the same thing with crypto, right? Crypto isn't something that you could say that it is. Uh, you, you, could, you could say that it's evolutionary as well, because mm. that's the way. You could even say that crypto is nearer to physical cash, which we used sure. years ago than these days, the electronic payment systems. Electronic yeah. payments are very different physical cash that we did, you, you know, used for hundreds of years. But crypto is closer to that than online. Just to finish on the embedded finance, last sort of question or topic, but do you think the, the impact of, of embedded finance will be equal across geographies, across the globe, across developing versus developed markets? What is the impact of embedded finance geographically, do you think? That's a good question. I, I, I think it would be because... A lot of the developing markets are now coming up at a pace that is much higher than the mm. pace that you see in developed markets because, well, yes, they've got more to catch up, but you see in, you see from the fintech point of view, actually there is more innovation going on in Africa and Latin America than, right. than in Europe in many cases, yeah. because there are more opportunities there to convert from the way things are done in a slow or cash-based way to really sort of leapfrog a very digital value chain. Yeah. You have obviously the, you know, the two giants and financial and, uh, and, uh, and sent chat. They, they, they have been, I mean, they, you know, you could call them super wallets. I mean, a lot of people would say that, oh, that the trend of super apps is not going to come into Europe because right. it hasn't so far. Yeah. Because if, 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 if I want to hail a cab, I'd rather, I'd go to the Uber app because it's already there. You know, so mm -hmm. those services have developed independently. We trust those services independently, but there is no stopping a sort of a super or app in curating services from different partners. So they're not mm -hmm. actually creating all those themselves. They don't own those services themselves, but they are curate, curating them from different partners and then offering them in a more seamless way mm -hmm. to the customer. So it's easier for the customer. And perhaps if there is some some rewards or some incentives attached right. to that. I think, uh, I think it is true that there are very few one-stop shop apps in yeah. what you would say in the West or developed markets, but you could have some services that make sense to be combined together in one app. But uh, perhaps in Latin America, wallets like Rappi, who have actually identified what are the key things that people like in different markets that they're in mm. and then supply them. So for example, they have one service in Colombia where you can actually get cash out, physical cash out in your app and somebody will deliver it to you and, you know, at your door. That's not never going to work in US or, or, or Europe, but, but it's something that works in Latin America. So, you know, every region will have yeah. its own. Yeah. Uh, let's segue on to financial inclusion. What were the sort of uh, main findings from a financial inclusion point of view? I think uh, you were highlighting, I think, that uh, there are quite a few fintech companies addressing financial inclusion. Yeah, I think any, any the good thing in, uh, about fintechs in developing markets is that any fintech that is promoting digital payments or digital credit or, mm. or anything around that sphere is actually doing the financial inclusion. Right. Because, so financial inclusion means, has a, has a different meaning in developing markets than it has in developed markets. In developed markets, it's actually people whose credit scores are very low, so they may be financially excluded from okay. getting loans from banks. But in the developing world, 
it's being completely left out of the digital world. It is actually entering the electronic mm. financial services world. And I think the, the, the great thing is that many governments in, for example, in Africa or in Asia are conscious of their responsibility in this area. Mm -hmm. So they're doing everything they can to help the fintechs. But at the same time, uh, while they have a regulation that is still catching up with the open banking type regulation that we have in, in, in yeah. Europe, for example, yeah. the governments are actually consciously promoting right. an environment where, where fintechs are encouraged and where electronic payments so, are encouraged. So perhaps, whereas in, certainly in Europe, the policy agenda and framework around fintech was to promote innovation and entrepreneurialism, competition and, and, and introduce new digital services and, and compete with, with the banks. Sounds like in developing markets, actually, the policy framework is, is orientated around financial inclusion. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. Exactly. You will see in the policies in many of the developing markets, actually, don't exclude banks. They're not trying to instill more competition in the right. banking. Yeah. It's, in fact, sometimes banks are mandated to be part of the value chain in some mm -hmm. markets because it is felt that banks bring an element of security, an element of stability right. in, the, in the payment value chain. But what, they, what, 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 what the governments want from fintechs is to actually bring a wider array of services to people in the countryside, people who may be paying a lot of money for certain services because, mm. because there is nothing else to do. So, for example, in some markets in Africa and Asia, when people in a city had to send money to their family in the rural areas, mm. they had to pay a lot of money mm. because there was no... There, you could, they weren't, they were not banked. They, and the banks didn't have access to yeah. it. So that not just only expands that everybody comes into the financial services environment and, 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 and takes the benefit of that, but also things become cheaper. The services become cheaper for them and quicker. In Europe, regulation helped. I mean, regulation had certain elements that probably didn't help anyone, but they were this opening up actually helped. Uh, generate this new environment that you're talking about. Uh, There's sort of a he healthy cooperation plus competition together, you know, right. that forces us all to, to expand our, in a way, mindset of yeah. what, you know, let's, let, let, let's see how we can uh, offer new services to consumers. And that's what we are all here for. Yeah, that does appear to be the formula that, that seems to be successful, right? Where, where yeah, exactly. Never... Whereas in other markets, developed mm. markets, so for example, in the United States, there isn't a regulation like that, but, yep. but banks and other organizations feel that perhaps this is the right way to go, that you can actually compete at the same time you can cooperate. Right. Let's move on to the, the third theme, the fascinating topic of crypto. So what, what were the main findings in your report with regards to crypto? Yeah, I think in crypto, we spoke to a lot of people who are in the industry who live and breathe crypto. Mm. And some of them have very strong political opinions, you know, opinions that, that are not necessarily payments of financial services data driven. They're more ideologically driven. Okay. Which is why they support crypto, which is, which is, which is absolutely fine because Crypto, by definition, is something that is decentralized. And that's what a lot, lot of the people think that, you know, that empowers people, empowers consumers and, and users of the financial system rather than somebody at the center dictating yeah. things and, and being 
a single point of failure if, if a crisis were to hit. So we, we talked to sort of different types of people and it's interesting, uh, you know, to see that there isn't, there isn't obviously, it's, it's just such a very new area. But the, the key thing is that crypto is being now being taken seriously by serious mm. organizations. Previously, mm. it was just a fad. It was something that people, you know, invested in as a proxy for, for speculation or gambling. <laughs> but it is something now serious. It is commodity for some, as an investable commodity for some. In the future, it will be a currency in its own right. It is not right now. You can't really go and buy things with normal things with crypto, you know, except certain merchants are saying, yes, you can use crypto. And that's when it stabilizes because there's still the valuations of cryptocurrencies are still sort of, you know, like, like a yo-yo still. But I think what's, what's very interesting is that the reaction from the banking industry to crypto. So in the first place, they have sort of embraced crypto, but the central banks are actually fighting against crypto through CBDCs. Right. Yeah, there's absolutely fascinating spaces of what's going on there. What, what's, I mean, in your, in the report, you go into quite a lot of detail in terms of the current activity or status of CBDCs worldwide and all the different markets. And where, are there any success stories or, or, or what's the current situation with regards to CBDCs? Where do we stand? Yeah, I think CBDCs are, uh, becoming uh, prominent, you could say, in the roadmap of financial mm. services for some countries, for example, China, maybe Singapore, a few other countries, because they see these currencies as something that would enable a more efficient centralized system that can ensure stability in the country's financial system. Mm. Whereas in some other markets, like in Europe or United States, people are doing something in this area, but frankly, I think a lot of them are confused. A lot of the right. central banks are really confused what yeah. to do. So they seem, they want to do something that they, they, that, that they're doing this, that they're exploring it. Mm. But, but I think when they actually start implementing some form of digital currency, it's going to be very limited or a subset of what you would see in countries like China in, or, or other countries in Asia. The UK's current stance from a government point of view on, on CBDC is that, that they don't feel at this stage that there is an application out there for it. Is that fair? Is that? Yeah, I, I think they're still exploring. I think they're, uh, the European Central Bank is, you know, talking about the digital euro and, um, and, um, you, you can have these digital currencies, uh, you can have, you know, a digital version of your fiat currency, right. but that's very different from a CBDC and that's entirely a mirror opposite of a cryptocurrency. Yeah. Can they all coexist? I mean, sure. Together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I think, I think it'll be a different things for different people. So for cryptocurrencies would still be perhaps for a section of, of consumers mm -hmm. who would still use them for several reasons. And perhaps CBDCs will find use cases in the B2B world. Right. And in the international cross-border payment cross -border world. Payments, yeah. Still mm -hmm. friction. Exactly. And, and digital, digital euro or digital dollar would also find more relevance in the cross-border payments world. In your report, you do actually highlight that there is, there is a significant usage of crypto in, in some developing markets. I mean, I know the biggest mar markets for crypto are still the US, et cetera, but there are some, some developing countries where there's a high degree of, of, of interest in crypto. 
Um, does this link back to the comment you made earlier on about cash and crypto being a form of cash, or or, or what, why why do we see the, the significant activity? Yeah, I think, uh, I think no, no. I was going to say that I think one reason, absolutely, because there's a lot of cash, and you, you, this is almost a straight way of a straight approach to a digital cash, radical cash. So that's that's one reason. The other reason is that some of the countries have less stable financial financial systems. You may have some countries where there is loss of confidence in the financial system. The local currency is is on the way down. There's high inflation. People really don't feel confident in keeping their money in their own local currency. So people would tend to buy cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency it's a better it's a better bet mm. than maybe your own own currency in your own country. Okay, great. I think that's that's fantastic. Really interesting reports. Thank you very much for your time today, Sammy. Can you perhaps just let the listeners know where they can get a copy of your report? What's the best way and also best way of contacting you? Sure, yes, you can come to our website. We also when we are at conferences or you are you may attend a conference that we are speaking at, any of our directors or principals are speaking at, you might see some small business card like it's not leaflets but they're cards and they have a qr code at the back and you can just use that to download if you're at a conference oh very nice so uh, no more physical copies no more physical copies we just thought we'll save some paper here perfect yeah well okay well thanks everyone for listening and uh, i'll place a link in the in the show notes for the report and uh, thanks again sammy and uh, see you next time thanks perfect thank you very much martin thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode to hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions, so feel free to make contact and say hello. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there, or you can email me on martin.coderish at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I will see you next time. <laughs>